Nefitali and the redheads today. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a a name of a band or something. Hi, everyone, and welcome. This is the Integrated Care Podcast, the official podcast of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. Welcome again for our November 2018 edition. We are glad you're here uh, listening. I'm Dr. Neftali Serrano. I'm the executive director of CFHA. And I'm joined today by two of our other podcasters. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves. Say hi, guys. Hi, hi guys. <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah, I broke I broke rule number one of podcasting, which is never like just do an open ended question to the entire group. Right? That's, <laughs> That's okay. Go ahead. Go ahead, Grace. This is Grace Wilson from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I'm behavioral medicine faculty and residency program here, and it is cold and windy in Oklahoma today got my nice cozy sweater on and thinking about all things kind of warmth and and, and cozy. Uh, Good morning. Well, good morning to you guys whenever you're listening to this. Good evening. Good afternoon. Um, We're just happy to hear you listening to us. My name is Amber Gordon and I am joining the team from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, I am a recent graduate uh, from North Central University um, from the medical family therapy program there. So I'm very excited to be providing the early career trainee student perspective. Great. And so you're probably wondering where our other voices are, uh, Deepu George and Jeffrey Ring. So they're unable to be with us today because they're busy and they're too cool for us, basically. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> Neither of them would ever in a million years say that. <laughs> I know. I know. I just, Jeffrey's listening to this and mortified that I just said that. Uh, Deepu's like, yeah, probably. Oh, poor Deepu. Not even here to defend himself. I know. I know. I know. Um, No, no. So they both have very good excuses. Deepu um, had a prior commitment. Um, He's uh, busy working on uh, building their program there at UTRGV. And Jeffrey has a a really good excuse, which is that he, at the time of the recording, was stuck in a torrential downpour of some sort on a Los Angeles highway. And for anyone who's been stuck in traffic on Los Angeles, uh, in Los Angeles, you can certainly have empathy for for our dear friend Jeffrey. So, um, yeah, they both wish they could be here with us. But I'm glad to be joined by you guys today. Yeah, it's Nefitali and the redheads today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's that sounds like a, a name of a band or something. So um, thank you to both of you for not making fun of me. I've been waiting for you guys to ask, like, why are you wearing a coat? And why is there a uh, garage door opener (laughs) in your ceiling? You've you've come to us from somebody's basement. You've come to us. Like, I just I'm like, oh, look, where's Nefitali coming from today? (laughs) There's a very interesting lamp in the background. I, I don't know. I just roll with it. Yeah, well, that's that's nice of you. Yeah, so this is actually um, this is where I where I'm now. The listeners can't see, but um, we're on Skype recording this, and then um, I'm in my what's called a garofis. So uh, you know, here at CFHA, we run on a very skinny budget. So <laughs> we and we're a national organization, so we have staff all over. Uh, this is my garofis, which is a garage office combo. And that usually works out pretty well in North Carolina, where I'm uh, based out of. However, today is a particularly chilly day, 
Uh, and so my garofis is not heated or insulated terribly well. I've got a space heater somewhere behind me that's not working terribly well. Um, and so that's why I have my coat on and I'm in my garofis and why you see a garage door opener behind me. Too much information for listeners out there who are, who can't see. Well, some of our listeners might also have a, a garofis. So they maybe connect with you in that way. And, you know, if you want to make it fancy, you could always like call it la garofis or something like that. Like how people (laughs) like to make target fancy and call it target, whatever you need to do. It it doesn't really help, Amber. I, I I actually had a meeting once. It was a meeting recently, and my kids have a uh, a pink, a huge like like a car size pink inflatable, uh, pink uh what is it? Is a flamingo? Is a pink flamingo? So it was. I, I didn't realize it was in view uh, <laughs> behind me. <laughs> so didn't look terribly professional. Uh, they have a pink inflatable flamingo behind you in a, on a conference call, but you know, what can you do? <laughs> the working uh, parent life. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So anyway, uh, back to our podcast here <laughs> and off this topic of graphices. So we've got a great show for you today. We've got a, a special segment for you today from the editors of family systems and health. Uh, I think it's really cool that you you all get to hear from the editors. Um, I think it's really going to be a, a a great relationship between uh, a journal and an audience. And so you'll hear from them a little bit about uh, their vision for uh, the journal. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that as we prep that segment. But uh, stay tuned for that in the last portion of our podcast today. Our main podcast topic today is a really cool one. We try to alternate our podcasts between sort of big picture topics. So you've heard us talk about, you know, healthcare and healthcare systems and uh, issues of social justice as they relate to healthcare and things like that. But we also like to get a little bit more in the weeds and talk about stuff that you might be dealing with each day if you're a clinician or a program developer. So today we're going to talk about the primary care consult and we're going to try to frame uh, for folks who are trying to train other folks, how we approach training, um, and also for the folks in training, try to kind of help them put you know, put some structure around how they think about the primary care consults and how they think about all the work that goes not just in the consult but around the consult related to team care. So we'll be talking a little bit about that. Uh, before we get to that, Uh, We have our news and notes sections. So uh, today we'll start with uh, Grace. Grace, why don't you give us your news and notes? Sure. Well, for my news item, I brought a article that was published recently in the Journal of Social and Clinical Psychology. And it's called No More FOMO. Limiting social media decreases loneliness and depression. And this study was done by some researchers at the University of Pennsylvania, Melissa Hunt, Rachel Marks, Courtney Lipson, and Jordan Young. And it's interesting because they um, did some randomization and they followed 143 undergraduates for a week and just checked to see how much social media use they had and some kind of baselines for things like depression and loneliness and well-being. And then they divided them into two groups. And one group, they said, just do what you want, you know, free, free for all, use your social media. And the other group, they had the limit to 10 minutes per platform of Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat. So 30 minutes max per day for those participants. And 
they did that for three weeks. And after just three weeks, um, the limited use group had significant reductions in loneliness and depression compared to the control group. And in one of the authors comment that this finding was particularly pronounced for participants who had higher levels of depression when they began the study. So it's really, I mean, I think this is a time of year that a lot of us are thinking about connecting with loved ones about this. It's, it's a meaningful time of year to many people um, for just lots of different reasons. And so I think it's a good time for us to think about our social media use, think about, you know, how that might be eroding our attempts at connection and actually bringing more loneliness for us. Um, and so we might really think about limiting our social media use and um, seeing how, how, if that gives us a little boost in our well-being. Cool. Wow. So, I mean, the the finding doesn't surprise me terribly, but did the authors kind of, did they provide any conjecture around, um, you know, what, what the... Um, role of social media was with regard to loneliness? Was it that, you know, the, they surmised that people were replacing actual sort of physical connection and outreach with the social media or that people were isolating as a result of focusing on social media or were they messaging? Well, it's partially what you just said. When you're on social media, you're not, you know, having those connections or time that you're spent with other people. But also, I think they get to it in their title, the FOMO. And when you're scrolling your feed, I heard it once said that, you know, we know 100% of our own lives. And when we compare ourselves to social media, we're comparing ourselves to the best 5%, be more critical and negative about ourselves. A lot of times we're comparing our worst 5% to their best 5%. And so I think that's what the authors were really getting at, that fear of missing out. Um, and that way that social media can keep us from the real connections with the tangible real people in our lives. Although all the, like they didn't give instructions to people of how to replace the time, their only intervention was limit your use. And so I think that that makes it pretty simple uh, experiment that we could replicate ourselves and kind of see the impact it makes in our own lives. Yeah, I think there's going to be more and more stuff coming out around uh, mm -hmm. the impact of social media on uh, lots of areas of, of uh, socialization and functioning. Cool. Cool news item, Amber. I, I know you, we talked before the before the recording about your item, so I'm, I'm really interested to hear about the book you're reading. Um, so actually, this it kind of fits in a little bit with what uh, Grace just shared uh, for her news item. I was really fortunate recently to attend um, a. It was a training, but it was more of a lecture. I'm at uh, Penn Foundation in Sellersville, and um, they are really amazing with putting on a ton of great trainings and lectures and workshops um, for all of the clinicians. Um, and they usually do them at low or no cost. Um, so as a very poor student, I was able to um, still attend this amazing lecture. And the lecture was uh, given by Robert J. Wicks. And for the people who aren't familiar with him, um, I did pull up a little bit of uh, his qualifications. He's a clinical psychologist and a writer about the intersection of spirituality and psychology. Wicks is a well-known speaker, therapist, and spiritual guide. He's taught at universities and professional schools um, in the areas of psychology, medicine, nursing, theology, and social work for more than 30 years. Some notable things that he mentioned in his training that really stuck out uh, for me is 
so when the genocide uh, in Rwanda happened, he was one of the people that went over and basically worked with the people that were providing aid. Um, he's also been at Walter Reed Army Hospital. Um, he's taught at a bunch of different um, universities and colleges. He's just a really, really cool person. So he's written a bunch of books, um, but the one that he spoke on is this book that I'm showing you guys that you know our listeners can't see, but we will link it in the show notes. Uh, the book is called The Resilient Clinician, and it's all about how to take care of ourselves. Uh, but the thing that I really found useful about what Wicks shared is that he really gets into the deeper levels of basically acute secondary stress for people who are therapists or first responders. Um, he works with doctors, nurses, all those kinds of people. Um, and he really gets into the ways that we can kind of keep it from manifesting in our own lives and really coming out in different ways. And this book shares a lot more than just like, when you go home, like relax and take a bubble bath or like do your self-care. Like we, we hear that all the time, self-care, self-care, self-care. But what does that actually mean and why is it important? So I'll just close by just reading you guys the headings for the chapter so you guys can get an idea of what the book is about. So the first section is about sensing dangers, chronic and acute secondary stress. Um, and then he talks about enhancing resiliency, strengthening one's own self-care protocol. Section three is replenishing the self, solitude, silence, and mindfulness. And then um, his fourth section is daily debriefing, which for those of you who were at the um, CFHA conference, we got to hear about why that's important in a lot of different settings. Uh, mindfulness and positive psychology as an integral part of the clinician's ongoing self-reflective process. Uh, so it's it's a great book. It's an easy read. Um, I got mine signed. Uh, so it, I really recommend it to anybody out there who's kind of really looking to take better care of themselves as um, a care provider and then also as something to maybe have in your back pocket if you're a trainer um, as well to pass on to, you know, new clinicians like myself. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm glad you pointed out, Amber, that, um, you know, the the issue of of sustainability for clinicians. Um, and this, this really pertains to all kinds of clinicians, right? So we're, this is behavioral health, this is medicine, um, and everybody in between, um, is, is more than just sort of engaging in a set of, of relaxation strategies, right? Um, it's really, um, in a way, uh, creating a whole worldview around which you can understand and respond to suffering effectively. And so that, that, that really, that does make me excited that people like uh, Dr. Wicks are working on these sorts of, of pieces. Um, Cause there's just not enough out there on that in training, particularly for, for the folks on the medical side. I think f this is an advantage that we have on the behavioral health side where we sort of naturally attend to these issues, but our colleagues, on the medicine side often don't either have the time or have the space to kind of work on these things as we've talked about in previous podcasts as well. And we still, I think we keep kind of talking about having one of these uh, podcasts focus on this topic. So we probably ought to like just do it because <laughs> mm -hmm. we keep coming back to it. Maybe we should make that our January topic. Seems like, especially around oh, here yeah. at the residency, 
you get past the holidays, but then it's still cold and the days are still short and mm-hmm. January can be a really hard time. And lots of patients are just going through difficult stuff. And uh, maybe we should plan on that for January. Yeah, let's do And it. I think yeah. it would uh, tie really well in with, you know, just kind of like new year, um, you know, mm-hmm. self-care, just coming through the holidays, which are wonderful. But um, I know being in helping professions, it can be a little taxing to be doing all the stuff that you get to do and, you know, also spending time with friends and family because the people that we really serve don't take holidays. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like I yeah. just joined the crisis team um, at my local hospital in the emergency room. And, you know, that's your, your work in Christmas, your work in um, New Year's day, all that kind of stuff. So I think that'd be a great January topic. You guys should, let us know what you think if you guys think that would be a great topic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and by the way, if you do want to give us feedback, uh, info at cfha.net is the address where you can uh, get to us, and we're happy to uh, take that feedback. Um, yeah, so let's let's do it. We, we just did our post-production or our pre-production, I should say, for, for January. So that's awesome. I think that's a great start. And it is very timely because if you are working in primary care, you know, like I knew this, the kind of the, you know, the seasons where you know stuff's going to get a little bit crazy, both from like the clinic and staff perspective, but the patient perspective and the holiday times were that time where mm-hmm. like people – you know, in the community, we're just really, really stressed out. Things are happening with their families, or maybe people are isolated, didn't have any families. And that's, this is a time where it all comes out. So I think January will be a great time to talk about clinician resiliency. So, all right. Uh, my news and news item today is actually um, uh, just talking about a couple of, of upcoming webinars we have. And um, if you're listening to this, uh, you probably aren't going to listen to it in time to get to our November webinar, but you can actually hear the recording for our November webinar, which is on adverse childhood experiences. Ruth Nutting, uh, Dr. Ruth Nutting and our colleagues are going to talk to us about lessons they learned uh, working on implementing the ACEs questionnaire uh, in a uh, urban pediatric clinic. It's a really great topic. They did part one of this last year. And so they're going to give an update on how it's gone, what the response has been from the patient standpoint and from the provider standpoint. Um, so they can have providers on the webinar talking about how they interacted with patients, whether they felt it was helpful or not. Um, I've seen the, the, uh, presentation slides ahead of time. So it's really exciting. So if you want to check that out, you can always check out um, our webinars or recorded webinars for free on integratedcarenews.com. So check that webinar out on that site. Uh, it's on the Vimeo feed if you scroll down to it on the site. Now, the other webinar that we have that I'm also pretty passionate about, and that is um, really ties into some current events we all can't ignore uh, because it's in our face almost every day is the issue of undocumented Latino patients. And uh, Martha Saucedo, who is a social worker and friend, a longtime friend of mine, is going to be presenting a uh, collaborative webinar between CFHA, our organization, and an organization called the National Register of Health Service Professionals. Um, and, and the National Register and CFHA have been great friends for, for years, and we've 
this year specifically partnered on several really great webinars. This one is super duper important uh, because it really, uh, Martha's going to talk about the unique aspects of working with Latino patients in the current political environment and all of the sort of nuances of how this affects families, um, their children, how they interact with healthcare providers, and how healthcare providers can uh, create environments to help Latinos, especially undocumented Latinos, uh, reach their health goals despite many of the stressors, anxieties, and pressures that they feel given um, the recent issues around immigration. Um, so that webinar is going to be on December 12th, and that will be recorded and available as well on the National Register's website, uh, which is nationalregister.org. So you can get to those, again, at integratedcarenews.com or nationalregister.org for more information. Uh, to look at all of our webinar series, you just go to our website, cfha.net, and under the Learn and Network tab, you can always find our webinars there. So if you can't find any of these or don't remember, you can always go there and find our archives and the upcoming webinars. And I say that I'm passionate about the Latino issue in particular. I love the recordings available long time after that they're actually conducted because we I use them for training all the time with my oh, interns. Cool. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like I said, I'm particularly passionate about the Latino issue because I am Latino myself um, can come from an immigrant background. Um, but uh, beyond that, it's just uh there are ways in which it touches all of our lives, whether we're healthcare providers working with these folks. Um, but also, just very personally speaking, my own pastor got arrested uh, this last week during an incident where a group of, of uh, pastors and parishioners were uh, trying to advocate for a uh, undocumented immigrant that ICE was mm -hmm. uh, basically uh, trying to apprehend. This is a person who is actually in sanctuary um, at a church uh, here in Durham, North Carolina. Um, and so, you know, this this is stuff that uh, as citizens, it affects us. And as healthcare professionals, we just, you know, in most of our environments anywhere, anyway, here in the United States, we, we can't ignore it. So I'm glad we're, we're hosting a webinar to at least provide a forum to talk about it. All right. Well, that is our news and notes. Let's move on here to our main topic of the day, which is a primary care consult and structuring it. So let me kind of intro it for us here. So Grace, you and I have obviously been in the role of training people to work um, and to, to work effectively from a clinical standpoint in a primary care setting. And um, we'll be sharing notes on how we, how we get people to to think and act effectively in a consult uh, environment. Um, I think the, th the, the thing that uh, first comes to my mind is the challenge of really um, helping someone navigate the idea of time. Because the first thing that, that trainees will to talk to me about whether it's someone I'm retraining from, you know, who's a, been a professional in another setting or a new student, is this idea of trying to be effective within a shorter time frame. And so I'm curious, I, I just wanted to ask you if you've come up with this as much as I have around this sort of idea that it's almost like 50 minutes is a magical amount of time 
And if I could have 15 minutes, this is what, you know, the trainees think. If I could have 15 minutes, then I could get the consult, get what I needed done. But, you know, 30 minutes, I don't know if I could do something in 30 minutes. So have you found that same phenomenon? Yes, I have. And one of the very first things I tell my trainees is stop trying to put your 50-minute hour into your 30-minute consult. You just, you cut some, like, you have to make some cuts. (laughs) You have to change the approach. Um, Because if you're just trying to cram in traditional therapy into an integrated care model, you are going to be extremely frustrated. Your patients are going to be frustrated. The medical clinicians are going to be like, get out of my exam room. Uh, so it just leads to whole domino effect of systemic operational problems. So that's the first advice I give is think of this differently. And then when I narrow down like what is actually different, a couple of main things come to mind for me. First of all, you don't have to spend as much time rapport building as you would in traditional therapy. So I think a lot of times if someone comes to therapy for the first time in a traditional therapy setting, we spend a lot of time getting them comfortable and making sure they, you know, understand talking about their perceptions of what therapy is, of their past history, et cetera, et cetera. And we can cut most of that out in an integrated care consult. We still need to absolutely introduce who we are, what we're doing there, how long they can expect it to take, those kinds of things, and important ethical things like, by the way, we're going to be documenting this in your medical chart, et cetera. But we borrow from the rapport that the patient already has with the clinic and with their physician. So when that physician says, hey, this is Grace, and she works here with me, and I really trust her, and I think she can help you with this issue, that knocks out a lot of things. It helps with the rapport building. It also is not us sitting down with someone who says, I feel bad and I want to feel better and trying to figure out what that means. So if there's a specific goal in mind, that's the kind of the second piece. You're targeted to the goal that the console is for. So and part of this is training the medical providers that we work with as well how to make good requests for consults because they need to have an idea in mind of what they're wanting. Are they wanting assessment help? Are they wanting brief intervention? Are they wanting a safety plan and crisis stabilization? And if they can come to us even with a couple of sentences, and sometimes that means us as the behavioral health people helping train them what that's going to look like, then that saves a lot of time with the patient because it's not just, we have, you know, as an MFT, I think a lot of, you know, what are the, what's the problem that couples come to therapy with? Every single time, it's a communication problem, right? right? right. And what does that mean? That can yeah. mean anything versus for these kinds of consults, it does need to ideally be for a more specific, it's a sleep problem. Their diabetes is out of control and they need help with those specific behavioral changes. And after, after this, I'll stop and let someone else talk. But if the patient's not narrowing down, oh, here's the goals that I have or here's the specific focused work that I need to do, then maybe that consult is us figuring out, okay, you need a different level of care than integrated care, or we need to carve out what's the specific thing that we're going to work on right now, not to tackle every problem. And if they have too much of that kind of thing where there's 14 goals and they can't prioritize and they really maybe need a longer term therapy, then we can help connect them with the resources where they're going to be seen for that. So I don't believe that this brief therapy integrated care is the answer to every problem. It's not the right level of service that everyone needs. But if we can determine that, connect people with the resources that we need, we've also done a good service for that patient and for the clinic that we're working with. So those are my initial brief thoughts. Not so brief. 
No, no, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, 100% on board. And, you know, the fascinating thing to me, Grace, is that um, everyone that I talk to nationally who's been in primary care for any period of time, and certainly through CFHA, we have all these connections and we talk and all that. But I know people who are who have been disconnected necessarily from these networks and come to the same conclusions that you just came to about yes. what this consult, what these consults are supposed to be about and how you treat them um, in, in the context of what you're trying to accomplish. And so mm-hmm. somehow this consensus has emerged uh, without. Without, you know, you and I didn't go to the same school. (laughs) We didn't. (laughs) And, you know, I'm sure there's some connections of things we might have read and things like that uh, in common. But a lot of this is just the environment has shaped, oh, okay, this is what primary care behavioral health is versus specialty care. That distinction, I think, is really important too. primary care versus specialty care. And it's a parallel that I think we can make for the patients and the medical providers that we work with. You know, it's so great when we can make analogies to physical health because we're typically working in a medical setting. So that's what people are more familiar with. And so sometimes a physician that I'm working with wants us to see and treat all of these huge problems. And I know that this person is going to be a better fit for specialty mental health so I'll say, hey, you know, this is like your patient who has, uh, you know, there's something endocrine going on. You know that there's like some kind of out of control, difficult problem. So you're going to send them over, get their work up, get them stabilized, and then they can come back and you can manage it afterwards. That's your typical workflow for this, right? That's what we need to do in this situation. We need to send them out to specialty mental health, really get that relationship established, get them stabilized, and then they come back to us. And then we can help support that growth and change, et cetera, et cetera. But when we can make that analogy, and if you know the specific doctor that you work with or NP or PA or um, you know whoever it is that you're working with and know what's a problem that they typically refer out, maybe it's their you know extreme asthmatics or maybe it's you know, really difficult rheumatoid kind of problem. If you can make that analogy for them, I think it just really sinks in and makes so much more sense because we don't want for them to feel like, well, how am I supposed to know which patient you're going to see and which one you're not? You know, they can get frustrated, I think, when we're asking them, give us referrals, let us see your patients. And then when we do send someone out, like, wait, (laughs) I told the the patient they could get therapy here. What are you doing? And so that constant communication and educating and learning from each other is so important. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, part of it is, so what we're talking about really is the context of understanding what you're trying to accomplish in primary care is important for understanding what you're going to do with yes. that 30-minute consult. So that's that's the key sort of context for that. And then you already started, Grace, talking about some of the key pieces that you need in the consult, right? So that introduction is important, and you you hit all of them on the head, right? You need to identify who you are. You need to identify what your role is on the team. Uh, you need to um, identify the time period that you're going to spend with the patient so that the patient kind of knows it's not going to go on forever here. There's, a, you know, that's a, a fear that lots of patients have when they meet person number two or three on their visit. Um, and you need to uh, just talk about the uh, way that the team communicates. So that's where you talk about things like, yes, I chart in the same record that your provider charts. We share our notes and we talk about this um, Uh, between us. And then, as you also talked about, the key then becomes going into the consult with a clear enough 
understanding of what you're going to target or what's important. And I say clear enough because any of us who have worked in primary care know that we never walk in knowing exactly what's going to happen in that visit. Um, sometimes, but even when a provider gives us a good warm handoff with those good descriptors that you talked about, Grace, there are times when the provider maybe didn't hit a particular piece or maybe the patient didn't disclose something crucial to the picture. And then when we get in there, we learn that we have to re reconfigure our approach and, and focus maybe on something else. But nonetheless, starting off with a focus helps you start the consult in a productive way. And that includes things like, for example, what I usually say is, in what I call my transition statement, I say, so I spoke with your doctor and she let me know that uh, you've been struggling with, with this. And she was concerned that the medication she's providing is not uh, working effectively enough. Can you tell me a little bit more about what this looks like in your day-to-day -day life? So I, I start off the consult with that focus. Now, if the patient changes that focus because they then say something like, I've had this happen where it's like, you know, they kind of finally feel safe enough to say, actually, uh, seven months ago I was raped, right? And they didn't tell the doctor that. And I was like, okay, then I'm, and I'm happy to change the focus and, and really begin working on the patient's agenda at that point. But having that focus is really important to help communicate to the patient how you're going to work with them and sets a tone for that conversation that's different than what you might do in a specialty setting where you don't have a lot of background information and where you may start a consult with uh, a more general question like, so... Um, tell me a little bit about your family life or so tell me about how I can be most helpful to you, that kind of a thing. After that, that clinical content portion, so the piece where then you're doing assessment and you're doing conceptualization in your mind. I'm curious, Grace, how you try to teach those critical thinking skills, particularly, let's say, you know, and Amber We'll bring you into the conversation here on this piece in a second. So, but, but I'm curious to hear your perspective after Grace gives her, her thing on this, okay? Because this is what's really interesting to me about doing this kind of work. Um, we teach people how to think in a certain way in these consults because you have to think efficiently, right? I mean, you can't like just be kind of lazy with your case conceptualization in a consult if you're going to really be helpful to people and if you're going to kind of help maneuver a consult effectively. So Grace, I'm wondering how you sort of try to teach those case conceptions. How do you teach people to think efficiently and critically in those consults? And then Amber, I'm curious as to what, how you as a student then sort of think about how, what's, what, what would be helpful to you um, to, to kind of learn these skills? How, does this feel f completely foreign to you at this point? Or does this feel like, oh, yeah, I can see how I can learn this? So, so Grace, go ahead. What, what's your magic? <laughs> well, I don't know if it's magic. But I, I, I go back to what we said earlier about what's really the purpose of this. And I tell them, if you're asking questions that aren't related to the targeted problem, that aren't related to the specific goal of the encounter, which 
you know, take a step back, then you have to have a goal in mind for the encounter, then you're probably veering off of what you really need to be doing in that moment. At the same time, I try to get them to think about frameworks and biopsychosocial spiritual is a very useful framework, I think. So, you know, to have them sort of take a split second to think back in their mind, you know, visualize that they have four boxes, you know, they've got their biopsychosocial spiritual boxes. And do they have enough information in each of those boxes and about how those things might be connected that they feel like they've got a decent enough assessment of the problem. So if the patient's just telling you stress at work, stress at work, stress at work, stress at work, I've got to deal with this, you know, I'm just having anxiety attacks at work. If you don't know enough about what's going on for them biologically or in their relationships or in their meaning making process in life, if you don't know a little bit in those different areas, then we might miss the elephant that's in the room. And so it's not, I think that we, I don't train my interns to do a full biopsychosocial spiritual interview for every integrated care consult. That would not be realistic or it, it wouldn't even be appropriate. Right, right. Probably the most common advice I give to my interns is to meta-communicate. So I'm a big fan of just being really open with the patient about the process and our thought processes and what we're thinking. And so what I might even pose it as a question is, okay, we've been talking a lot about your work stress, but I really think lots of areas of our life are interconnected. So your physical health, your mental health, your relationships, and the way that you even make meaning of the world or, you know, spirituality. And so if we had to draw some lines to connect between this problem you're having at work and the stress and the anxiety are there any things that you would connect with your physical health or how it feels in your body or your relationships or that meaning making system for you that might be related to the stress at work? So it's still problem focused. It's not digging way back and becoming psychodynamic and saying, okay, actually, why don't you lay down on that exam table? Let's turn that into a couch and talk about your mother. Uh, that. But it is just thinking a little bit more systemically Another analogy I really like is, I don't know if you guys have seen these, my three-year-old really likes them. They're pictures that are like a scratch-off. And so as you scratch off the coating, eventually you can see the picture underneath and it kind of reveals. Uh, and he loves to just scratch away with a penny or whatever. So I tell my interns, imagine it's like that. So you start scratching in the middle of the problem and you see a little bit of the picture start to emerge, but we need to go enough towards the edges to flesh out the pieces that are connected to that so that we can see the context of what's going on. Not the whole context, not every person that they've ever known and talked to in their lives, but what's connected to the problem that's being presented. So that's kind of how I think about it. Scratching around the edges, getting mm -hmm. that context, mm -hmm. thinking biopsychosocial, spiritual, but always in relation to the problem at hand. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I've heard it t talked about in a, a similar but slightly different ways. So Patty Robinson, for example, and Kurt Strauss will talk about it from an ACT perspective. They use love, work, play, health as their sort of biopsychosocial essentially um, framework. And I, I love the addition of spirituality because so many patients um, have that as a really meaningful core component as well. So yeah, um, I, before Amber, you jump in here on, the, on, on kind of your response to this now, um, I'll say, I'll add a, a question that often elicits a whole lot of information that I teach, especially trainees to kind of use fairly frequently, especially when they feel a little bit stuck in a consult. Um, in making those connections, because I love exactly what you're talking about, Grace. It's really about making those connections between the parts 
of a person's life that helps us really understand how they're maneuvering life. Because that's really what I want to get at. I want to get at function. How are you maneuvering in your life? And how do these different pieces of your life are either working well together or not working well together? Um, and so the question I have people uh, use is just walk me through a day in your life and tell me everything that you're trying to do during that, t- during that time, like uh, what you're eating, um, who you're with, um, what you're doing. And through that, you get a sense of their biopsychosocial spiritual life. You get a sense whether they're eating well, sleeping well, whether they are interacting meaningfully with other human beings or isolating. You get a sense of what the meaningful parts of their life are, whether it's their children or their work or other things. And you can get it a lot of information pretty quickly um, in that way and then reflect that back to the person. And you might say, hmm, it's interesting. You, as we talked about your day, I really didn't hear anything about sort of meaningful people in your life that are supporting you. Is that something that's missing in your life? And it begins to help get you to that place where you begin to formulate some intervention ideas together with, in a collaborative way, with the patient and with the patient's family. So, so enough of us. So you've heard us talk about how we try to teach this. So A, Amber, it, does this ring true with what you have experienced or taught, been taught? And B, does this, is this helpful the way we're talking about it? Um, I can tell you guys that I have to go have a conversation with my boyfriend because I'm going to pack my bags and move to Oklahoma. So I'm <laughs> yeah. under grace. Um, we, we just moved into a new place together for two years, but he's going to have to carry the lease because I'm, <laughs> I'm coming go. over there to, to work with Grace. Um, hey, we're about keeping just... families together here, not <laughs> Well, he's going to, he'll have to come too. We'll have to figure out some kind of subleasing uh, situation or something because <laughs> I, I, just in that couple moments, my whole perspective was completely shifted. Um, I, you know, I, I went into this thinking like, I'm like, oh, I'll ask this question or, oh, I can add that. Like Grace literally just kind of addressed everything. I think the one piece that I'm sitting here with is that as a young clinician, it's important to remember that when we walk in that room, we don't have to be the expert. No one's expecting us to walk in there with the answers. So it's allowing yourself the space to be curious, to ask those questions, to allow the patient um, or the client to be the expert in their own life, who knows them better than them. So I think oftentimes the biggest barrier I've run into is getting in my own way, feeling like, okay, I'm going to go in there and I have to figure out the cause of their sleep problem. So it could be this, it could be that, or maybe it's this. And then we have to address their med compliance issue. Like just go in there and be with them and and learn about them so that you can have the information to fill in the boxes, like Grace was saying, and don't feel pressured to walk in there as an expert or knowing all the answers. Or if, you know, you're being really curious and asking simple questions, people are going to think less of you or something like that. So I think oftentimes it's just kind of maybe really being able to join and get the information that's likely, you know, very easily accessible if they just kind of allow it to be. Well, there's a pitfall that can happen, I think, with exactly what you're talking about. Like, it's so good to have ideas of what might be helpful to this patient and to have built up your toolbox of interventions you have available and medical knowledge about how things are connected. But sometimes the combination of having worked really hard on knowing some interventions and feeling a lot of time pressure 
makes people, I, I found, especially beginning clinicians, feel like they need to rush. So they hear, oh, 30 yeah. minutes, I don't have an hour, I got to get You get those it. blinders on and then you can't think systemically because, you know, yeah. you're just not allowing yourself to really see what's going on from a systemic perspective. I love that mindful curiosity that you're talking about. And if we can approach it with that openness, it makes such a huge difference. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I describe it to trainees as sort of a, a Zen space. I, that's how I experience it. When you're in a room, I think I might have used this analogy here before, but like it's like being in that matrix scene where things are slowed down, you know, Um that's how it feels like when you have a really good console. It's not rushed. It's really just present, focused, and you're assimilating important information in a seamless fashion. You're bringing it together in a meaningful way to get a picture of how this patient sees the world, how they're interacting with the world, and um, the key parts of their world and their life, both inner and, and external. And then, and then it becomes clear where you can be helpful. Not, as you said, Amber, where you can be the answer, but or mm. where you have all the answers, because um, we don't. What we have is more a pathway. We have a direction. We have a place where we can say, hey, let's get you energized around these couple of steps and see where that takes you. Um, see how that goes. I always use curiosity with patients because I don't know if my recommendation is going to help them. I really don't know. I have some evidence behind what I do, but um, as I apply that evidence to a particular individual, I don't know that that's going to help them. I, you know, we have to see, we have to be curious about that. Right. And I consider it a, like a successful interaction when I ask a patient, does that sound like something that would be helpful to you? And they're like, I can't see myself doing that. I really, no. I don't think I'm going to do that because <laughs> I appreciate the relationship that we've built. And I'm like, okay, well, thank you for telling me that. Let's think of what we could do instead, because, you know, I can have the flashiest, best, fanciest interventions in the world. And if my patient's like, eh, that is not for me, then it's never going to go anywhere. So I mm -hmm. just try to approach it with that sort of humility. Like you said, I don't have the answers, but I have a presence here with you that we can sit and we can try to work this out together. Yeah. And sometimes actually knowing what is not going to work is actually a great step towards kind of knowing what will. So yeah, that yes. next question for me is cool. I'm glad I'm glad that we're being honest about that. So maybe we can use what you don't like about that to help us figure out what might actually work. And yes. then I put it back on the patient to kind of work on that. So these are some sort of tips and tricks we have around this. Uh, we'd love to hear from you uh, whether there's some pieces there in your life as listeners, as clinicians um, about what will work. Um, if you're a physician, what your what what works when you have a, a consult and you want to hand it off effectively? You know what 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 do you think is important there? And also on the behavioral health side, how you adapt evidence-based interventions to work in these kind of settings. Grace, you have Let something. Let me to say. add one more thing. After the interaction with the patient is done, I think the last part that's really essential to an effective consult is then how you close that loop, how you communicate that information, both verbally and written in your documentation. And so the other piece where I see a big departure in this model from traditional therapy is our documentation is a lot shorter. I instruct um, my trainees to keep it process oriented and also to think about. Was it something you did or something you're going to do next time? 
or an important piece of assessment data. And if it's not one of those things, then it probably doesn't need to go in your notes. Um, and that is a big shift. So whenever I see a trainee who's getting behind on their notes or um, not being able to keep up with them, the first thing I look at is how long is your documentation because it probably needs to be about a third of long as how it is. The exception, of course, is when there's an issue of safety. sure that we're giving that very clear assessment with the safety problem, but other than that, it needs to be really short process focused. The other piece of that is the medical providers that we work with don't have time to read pages and pages and pages and pages of notes from your consults. It's not gonna go anywhere. So that documentation is not effective. So we've got to be brief, be process oriented, and it needs to be um, only the essentials that are in there. Yeah, and we're gonna need a part two on this to yes, talk absolutely. about some of those other nuances because there's a bunch of nuances there that are important around the two pieces you brought up, which are the 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 handoff from physician to the behavioral health clinician, and then the closing the loop at the end, there's specific skills that I know you and I both teach our students around that, and then also the documentation skills. And I'm really, I, I love having Amber here because I, I realized I don't think I've ever asked my trainees, like, are you, are you tracking with me? I just like, you know, try to assess if they're tracking with me, but I haven't actually asked them like, does this make sense? <laughs> so we'll, we'll have a part two on this. Uh, but we've got to move on to our special segment here. Before we do that, let's cut to a break. So here's the situation. You're a clinic trying to implement what should be a simple screening process for depression, and you're just not getting results. And you're trying to get your primary care providers working together with your mental health professionals, but the two sides just aren't jiving. Meanwhile, everyone agrees that the need is great and something needs to be done. Well, that's where CFHA's technical assistance services come in. We work with projects large and small from one-hour consultations to 1,000 hours and help you implement integrated care pathways that are evidence-based and grounded in practical know-how. Our stable of consultants are here to help. Interested? Then simply go to cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. Join the growing list of organizations who have benefited from the best guidance for integrated care around. That's cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. All right, and we're back. And uh, yeah, as I said, we're gonna have a part two on our conversation on prim the primary care console, at least a part two. There's so many rabbit trails we can go with that. I know, and I, I'm really missing Jeff and Deepu's thoughts oh, on this too. I know. Yeah, I know. I know they have so much wealth of wisdom to share. I know, this would have been like three hours long if it, they were on. <laughs> yes. So, um, and, and yeah, so, Let's cut to our, our our special segment with the editors of Family Systems and Health. For those of you who don't know, the CFHA is the sponsor for an APA journal called Family Systems and Health. And um, CFHA and FSH have a long history together uh, dating back to the early late 90s, early 2000s. And there's a new set of editors now, Drs. Jody Palaha and Nadia Sundarji. Um, these are two of the most dynamic ladies you'll ever meet. Um, one a physician, uh, Dr. Sundarji, one a psychologist, Dr. Palaha. Um, 
really great people and they bring a really fresh uh, perspective to their work. And so this uh, segment is really explaining their perspective. They use a great analogy about a bridge. And what's cool, and Jeffrey, actually, as I talked to him right before this during his uh, traffic jam situation, um, wanted me to say that he thought it was just fantastic how um, he's never really experienced a journal or relationship with a journal and their editors where there was an explicit sort of vision around bridging uh, the real world of implementation and basic science. And that's that's what uh, the uh, co-editors of FSH are going to talk to you about uh, in this special segment. So without further ado, here's Drs. Palaha and Sandarji. Okay, so this is our first ever attempt at making a podcast. And we would love to have this chance to spread the word about the journal to the membership of CFHA in this format. Really, this is just an opportunity for the incoming co-editors of Family Systems and Health to reflect on their first issue. So Jody, uh, in this first installment of our podcast, our theme is on bridges and editor's dreams. Um, Why don't we start by telling people about the bridge? I would love to talk about the bridge. So when you have the chance to read our inaugural editorial, Nadia and I are both hopeful that you will take the opportunity to look at the illustration of the bridge that we have provided in our figure. When we set out to write the editorial, This was our opportunity to really set the course for the journal during our editorship. And we really wanted to talk about translational science and position the journal on the far right end of the bridge. Uh, And this is a metaphor we borrowed from Zerhuni where he talked years ago about the translational bridge and the place of different kinds of science on the bridge. Um, Dissemination and, uh, and implementation science are often described as being on the far right side of the bridge. Um, And I had talked about the bridge in lots of talks prior and always used these um, kind of loose um, pictures that I found online in different places, but never really had a great image of the bridge that described it exactly or showed it exactly how I wanted it to be shown. And so what was cool about this was that we had my dad, who is um, an engineer, and who has worked on bridges in his career, uh, draw the bridge for us. And we were able to get the bridge to look exactly the way we wanted it to look. So it's kind of neat to have an illustration that uh, was done by someone we know, someone that I love, right there in our own first editorial. It's great to have uh, multiple Palahas contributing already to our, our first issue together. Um, it is a really helpful illustration, I think. Um, and I, but I, I think the, uh, you know, the idea of the left and middle and right sides of the bridge are really important for people to understand. So do you think you could maybe explain the metaphor a bit more? Sure. So if you're listening, you don't have the opportunity to see a bridge unless you can get a metaphor bridge in your head just for the purposes of, of thinking about it a bit. It's a bridge in which the left side of the bridge is well-constructed and well-attached to the shore, and that represents basic science. There's uh, lots of funding mechanisms for doing basic science. There are lots of methods for doing basic science. There are journals that publish 
basic science. And there's a really quite an infrastructure for producing basic science. Similarly, the middle of this bridge, if you can picture it in your mind, is well-constructed. And that's where we have applied science and likewise have strong methods uh, and strong pathways for, for exchanging information and ideas, um, sort of good strategies for doing the work, and lots of people doing it. But in this particular illustration, uh, my dad has drawn the right side of the bridge as being poorly connected to the shore. It's not quite finished. Uh, it's still being constructed. And so uh, if you were driving across this bridge, you wouldn't be able to make it. Um, and the fact of the matter is, a lot of our science doesn't make it from the left to the right side of the bridge. Um, we can generate some good basic knowledge. We can come up with some strong treatments that show good results in well-devised randomized controlled trials. But when we try to translate those treatments to the far shore on the right, where real world settings are um, attempting to implement them, we run into trouble. And so over the last, uh, well, it's been more than a decade now, uh, this field of dissemination and implementation science and similar kinds of fields, uh, health services research and other areas have been generating uh, bits of bridge, you could call it, uh, models and methods for researching how you get treatments to be implemented in real world settings. And so um, that's what the metaphor is all about. And it really shows the part of the, the bridge that we're hoping to focus on in our work going forward in the journal. That is science that helps us understand how to make things happen in real world settings, specifically health systems, families in those health systems or families with those kinds of health problems, and integrated care as kind of a part of all of that. Is there anything you would add to that, Nadia? No, that's great. I think the only other thing I would add is uh, one of the things I really like about the metaphor is um, kind of remembering the idea that traffic across the bridge goes in both directions and that kind of research and experience at the front lines of implementing programs uh, and services can, can really inform um, kind of what's happening in the middle, you know, middle of the bridge as well. Um, and really, we want to encourage uh, researchers to partner with other stakeholders, including clinicians, including administrative leaders, including policymakers, and perhaps especially including patients and families to really engage all of the different stakeholders who have a role to play in the uptake of evidence-based practices and the shaping of evidence-based practice. So we will be talking about that more in, uh, in subsequent editorials and issues in terms of elaborating on, on patient-oriented research and other such topics. But the, I think the metaphor of the bridge is really a great place to start and we're looking forward to exploring it more in future issues. Yeah, you know, it's that whole thing about if you want more research-based practice, then we need more practice-based research. And I think um, focusing our efforts and uh, the journal's emphasis on this far right side of the bridge where we're connecting with the land, which is where these things really happen in the real world, um, hopefully will generate that kind of spirit. 
And yeah, you and I have talked a lot about, um, you know, kind of our hopes and dreams for how the paper, uh, the paper itself, as well as the journal over time will influence the field. When you think about, you sort of touched on this just now, when you think about who might read this paper um, and, and what it might do, who, who do you think of? Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, I think of everyone, I would love for everyone to read our paper. Uh, but when I think about, uh, when I think about, uh, kind of who some of the, the primary target audiences are, I'm certainly, I think, you know, anyone who's, uh, considering writing or, uh, submitting their work to, uh, FSH should certainly consider taking a look at it and, um, kind of looking at how their work, you know, may align with our with our vision for the journal mm-hmm. over the next five years. Um, you know, researchers who conceptualize where they are along the bridge and consider where else along the bridge they could be connecting with or whom else they could be connecting with, you know, and then again, kind of referring to sort of the other, all the other stakeholders that we've, that we've just talked about, though you may may have more you want to to add to that and as the lead of developing it who who did you have in mind yeah agreed um i i do hope that folks who uh, do research on families uh, and health related issues researchers who do um, health services research and certainly systems research uh, will take a look at it and think about how their work can be uh, pointed more exactly at this far right side of the bridge. Um, and even how some researchers maybe think of themselves as doing more basic or more middle of the bridge applied type work, how they might incorporate concepts from quality improvement or implementation science as additional variables in studies and expand their ability to, to pass the information um, down all the way down the bridge. And then likewise, as you mentioned, um, people who don't think of themselves as researchers, who are really uh, what we call clinician innovators. They're people who are in clinics who are trying to do things differently, trying to do new things, would take some data. And um, hopefully this editorial will help them see um, how they and their administrator innovators um, can make contributions that are really important um, in terms of driving real-world research. Yeah, that's who I hope reads it. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell folks before we sign off from our inaugural podcast? Yeah, um, it's great having this airtime. Um, and I'm so glad that any of you who are listening are here. I hope that you will take a look at our editorial when it comes out in December. And, you know, this journal is the official journal of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. Um, and as members of that organization, um, I hope you will, number one, share it with uh, folks that, you know, might want to read and know about our expanded um, scope. I think it's expanded and reaching out to lots of uh, different kinds of audiences. Um, and also, let us know what you think. You know, we're, we're right here on the email and you can reach out to us and give us some input about our vision and direction for the journal. Nadia, anything else you'd want to say? Yeah, um, I, I, I feel like we have to sign off with a lot of thank yous. Um, you know, the, uh, the issue 
looks great. And we're excited about the whole issue um, in addition to, of course, our editorial. And um, we have to thank all of our uh, department editors for all their hard work to, to get some some really interesting material in there from uh, Kent Corso and colleagues in the book and media review section. The media reviews are really um, new and innovative for us. Uh, Marcia Nielsen and Natalie Levkovich have written a really thoughtful piece about policy and the uptake of integrated care. Um, Johanna Shapiro and Joe Marie Riley are really reinvigorating our creative section now called Sharing Our Stories. Um, and of course, first and foremost, uh, Colleen Fogarty and Larry Mauch, who have um, the outgoing editors who have uh, done tremendous work over the years and in this particular year in which we've overlapped with them have um, just provided us an incredible amount of support and mentorship and uh, just we've had a really um, collegial back and forth with them that uh, you know preparing us to launch as the editors in 2019 and so we really want to uh, give a shout out to them as well. Great it's been fun writing it. Mm-hmm. All right, signing off. Sounds good. Till next time. All right. Thanks to the uh, co-editors of FSH, um, Dr. Spalaha and Sunerjee. You'll be hearing from them on a semi-regular basis. They're going to produce these special segments, clue you in as to what's going on with uh, the content at FSH. Um, you can always look at the uh, the content that's posted um, uh, the, the journal comes out quarterly, but the articles come out ahead of time individually, as with many modern journals. So those are also located on integratedcarenews.com. There's a uh, uh, special feed there that lists all the uh, recent articles, and you can click through to at least read their abstracts. If you don't have access, if you're a CFHA member, you have access through us uh, to that uh, to that journal. So check, check uh, FSH out on Integrated Care news.com so we're at the end of another great podcast thank you again for listening um, as is our tradition we have our sending thoughts and today grace has uh, a very appropriate sending thought for us grace yes this is from a book called first patient last patient practicing medicine mindfully by Stephen del jadis i think which i'm sure i pronounced incorrectly it's given to me by a mentor of mine from a fellowship and it's about that mindful presence that we've been talking about it's called contact it doesn't have to be much, and it doesn't have to be in person. It just has to be enough. It requires your complete attention, listening without unrelated thoughts shifting in and out of your mind, free of distraction, speaking intentionally, not reciting lines like a cashier at the grocery store, calling a patient yourself, checking in, letting the person know you didn't forget what was said as soon as the visit ended, maybe sending a note, a personal note in the mail, a concentrated message. It doesn't have to be long. When you call, you might ask the patient to come in if you sense reassurance is needed. And if the person does come in, you sit nearby, looking into the eyes, maybe touching a knee, a forearm, a shoulder, using your emotional instincts and observational experience to tell you when to touch, what to say, when to just listen, when to leave. Medical charisma, that's what it feels like. Not charm or force of personality, not that kind of charisma, but charisma from the root of the word. Grace, your position, healer, makes this possible. 
When you bring your undivided consciousness to your patients, they feel medical charisma. It helps them heal. Their own instincts say they can trust you. Even a brief medical encounter can hold an intense moment. It's designed for one. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be hard. It has to be absolute. It has to be enough contact. Awesome. Our thanks to Grace for reading that great uh, sunning thought. Amber, as always, um, and our friends Jeff and Deepu, who couldn't be with us today. And actually, I, I failed to mention a, a new member, a silent member of our podcast team, our new post-production person, Kevin Riadin, uh, from the University of Rochester, who's helping us out with uh, producing this podcast. So um, kudos to everyone. We will see you again in a month. 